it can be fun. It's got lots of traps. Be careful and you know, go slowly. You're listening to Australia's podcast for accountants, Tax Talks, the podcast to grow your firm. Welcome to episode 299 of Tax Talks. This is Heide Robson and thank you to Class for sponsoring this episode. In episode 253, we looked at what happens to pre-CGT company assets after death. And this is a confusing topic. It's hard to get your head wrapped around this one. You sent us quite a few questions. So let's look at pre-CGT assets again. When do pre-CGT shares and company assets change to post-CGT? Here's Jeff Steen of Brownwright Steen Lawyers in Sydney. And Jeff will walk you through four scenarios, four different companies with pre-CGT shares and company assets and what happens to them. It's one of my favourite topics, ZZS and ZZT, showing my age. Well, these are the 1936 sections was 160 ZZS and 160 ZZT. And if you were practising in the period between when capital gains tax was first introduced and when it was rewritten into the new Act, you would have those section numbers or probably section letters, you know, burned into your memory. Well, of course, you know, it was more important in earlier on because you had a lot more of those transitional issues and making sure that you didn't trigger the, uh, you know, making a, a, an asset subject to capital gains tax where there is the potential for it not to be. Yes, that's actually a very good point. As we progress in time, of course, pre-CGT becomes less and less of an issue. Yeah, proportionately more assets are going to be within the CGT net as those assets change hands. If you don't mind, let's go through four companies, A, B, C and D. They all existed on the 20th of September 1985. Hence, their shares and their company assets are pre-CGT. They only hold one asset, a building, pre-CGT, purchased for $100,000. And this will become relevant later on when we look, look at capital gains. So purchased for $100,000 in August, just before CGT started. And we only have one individual shareholder, which we call the original shareholder. And now each of these companies does something different. Company A, change in majority shareholding. So let's just talk about Company A and, and what's happening is that the shareholder transfers his or her shares because it's one individual to someone else. So at that point in time, the new shareholder has a post-capital gains tax asset being having a cost base equivalent to the amount that the shareholder paid for the asset. And from that time forward, the asset in the company becomes a post-CGT asset with a cost base being the market value of the asset as at the time of the transaction where the shares were sold. So it's fairly straightforward. When you talk it through, though, what ends up happening when the asset is sold, if we imagine that the value of the asset at the time the share transaction happens is $5 million, okay, and then ultimately, let's say it's sold in the following year for $6 million. What happens is that the company has then made a taxable capital gain of the difference between the $6 million and the $5 million, but the non-taxable gain, the 
$4.9 million, the difference between the $100,000 cost base and the $5 million value at the time the share sale happens, is still effectively a reserve, but that reserve will come out as an unfranked dividend unless we have it coming out on winding up. And when it comes out on winding up, it'll be in relation to the shares at that time. So effectively, you end up with a zero position on your shares and a dividend representing the uh, capital gain between the 5 million and 6 million, which is the gain from when the shares were purchased. And that's the way it's supposed to work. It's supposed to say, I've bought this asset, let's look through the entity you know, in, in market value sense. If I've bought something for 5 million and I sell it for 6 million, then there's a $1 million taxing point. What's happening is if the company pays it out as a dividend and is not wound up, then it is an unfranked dividend. And the shareholder will then be subject to tax at normal marginal rates. If, however, the company is wound up, then the amount should be paid to the shareholder, assuming that the Archer Brothers principle is observed in the administration of the winding up. Um, it comes out to the shareholder on cancellation of the shares and should be treated as a capital gains tax event for that shareholder. And in that case, it should be neutral because the shareholder has a um, cost base of the five million for the shares and the capital proceeds that are returned to the shareholder should also be five million. Does that make sense, Heidi? Mm, I just have a mental blank. So there are six million in the bank. Um... Six million in the bank, one million is a taxable gain. So 300,000, say, to make the math so easy, because I still haven't adjusted mentally to the new rates. But let's just say that it's it's 300,000 or 270,000 or 250,000, whatever it's going to be at the relevant time, to the tax office. And then we'll have 700,000 or, or you know, 730 or 750 coming out as a frank, fully frank dividend. So the first 1 million basically comes out as a frank dividend, meaning 750,000 is paid out and 250,000 was paid to the ATO. Exactly. So that means we still have 5 million in the bank. And if those 5 million are then paid out as a dividend, then of course we have a problem. And if instead we wind up the company, then yes, there is a capital distribution of 5 million against the cost base of 5 million. So it's nil. Yep. Yep. Very good point. Okay. So that's company A. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I hope I'm, I hope I go, but I do better than it's the A long. case. Okay. And then let's move on to B. Company B, capital improvements. And B, introduce a new variation where, which is that we've got, let's say, a building or an improvement that's a post-capital gains tax asset, and the building is of a scale where it's able to be treated for tax purposes as a separate asset. And we've got to, you know, it's easy for us as um, when we're talking about tax matters to say, oh, this is a separate asset. But for property law purposes, it is one and the same asset. Right? And, and it's it's very difficult to explain that to people, um, you know, particularly property lawyers, that, that we've got two different assets for tax purposes. But the, the critical thing here is that we've got a change of shareholding. And I'm assuming here again, Heidi, that we're just going to say original individual shareholder is selling to another individual shareholder. Yes. So... At that point in time, it's it's exactly the same position, 
as the previous one, other yes. than you know what we've got to do is apportion a value um, at that time to the land as opposed to the building because the building will already have its cost base. So the building has a post-capital gains tax cost base, whatever that might be, and therefore we've got to reset the land value cost base. Yes, the improvement has a post-CGT cost base, but the original building is still pre-CGT or you don't separate like that? Well, the original building, assuming that it's you've got a new building on there, so you've got two buildings, say, then the original building will be a pre-asset which becomes post and will be valued at the time of the shareholding transaction. But the new building, that is the post-1985 building, will carry forward whatever its post-1985 cost base was. Okay. And if we don't have two separate buildings, we just have one building, for example, and that one building just has a capital improvement, it's still the same principle. You have a pre-CGT asset that then becomes post-CGT when the sharehold shareholdings are sold, and then you have a post-CGT asset that just remains a post-CGT asset. Correct. Okay. Company B. Yeah, we're rolling right along now. Yep. And of course, I guess we've got to keep be mindful again when we're talking about building buildings is that you know to the extent to which depreciation or building allowances may uh, reduce the cost base that's available. And also, sorry, with company B, if we sell the shares, of course, the shares again become, you might already have said that the shares become a post-CGT asset. Necessarily. Um, yeah, necessarily. And then we have to, but everything basically goes to post-CGT when we sell. Correct. Okay. Company C. Company C, 75% of net assets. Company C. So in company C, we've got, a company that has bought another building that is, you know, and it could even be another property, it doesn't really matter, does it? But the property at the time of its acquisition exceeds three times the value of the original pre-CGT property. And what we're trying to get here is, is again, in old terms, the ZZT problem, which is we're assuming here for, to, for it to be relevant that there's been no change of shareholding. You know, that is, the original shareholder still has the shares, but the mix of assets in the company has changed. And so the, the shares themselves nominally retain their pre-CGT status, nominally. But what we've got to remember here is that we don't test the valuation exercise immediately on acquisition. We've got a, a problem that we've got to be aware of on acquisition of the new asset, but we don't test the tax effect on the new asset, we're testing it at the time that we sell the shares. So the question is, when those shares are ultimately disposed of by the single individual shareholder, will the shareholder be subject to CGT, even though the shareholder acquired those shares before 19 September 1985? And, and the answer is going to depend on what are the values of the assets of the underlying company, the, the assets at the time of the sale. So what we're doing is we're saying if the value at time of sale of the new asset, the post-1985 asset, is more than three times the value at that time of the pre-asset, that is the 75%, then the shares are subject to capital gains tax to the extent that it reflects that gain. Exactly. And so the shares are pro rata, pre and post-CGT. So one portion is pre-CGT, one portion is post-CGT. And 
the first building remains pre-CGT and the new building becomes post-CGT, correct? Yeah, if we, if we, well, the new building's always post-CGT. Exactly. Yes, sorry. The, the new building remains post-CGT. The old building remains pre-CGT because we haven't had a change of shareholding at that point in time. But if we subsequently change shareholding, then it becomes irrelevant other than we're retesting the market value at the time of change of shareholding for the company. Yes, and if we sell the shares, then the, and hence everything becomes post-CGT, the cost base for the old building is only assessed at the market value at the time the shares are sold. Correct, it gets reset. There's a reset of the cost base at that point in time. Yes. So both buildings have a different cost base in terms of when it was established. The new building gets its cost base when it's purchased and then the, the old building gets its cost base when the shares are sold. Yeah. So that's company C. Company D, death of the original shareholder. And so now we come to company D and that is the one that causes a lot of confusion because the shares and the assets run with different cost bases, but we already had that in the other examples as well, actually, that the shares and the assets run with different cost bases. Yeah, well, well company D, the, the issue that we put to us is what happens when our sole shareholder dies? And so, yeah, and, you know, this is a, a big problem for estate planning and how you deal with it. So the rule is, as a, you know, generally, that, that when a shareholder dies, that the beneficiary will hold the new shares, or not new shares, but the, the inherited shares as a post-capital gains tax asset with a cost base equivalent to the market value at the time of death of the person from whom those shares were inherited, assuming, of course, that the person from whom the shares were inherited originally bought those shares before 19 September 1985. If the person inherits the shares and they are post-CGT shares in the hands of the person that died, then the beneficiary picks up the same cost base as the person that died had in those shares. I mean, our question is assuming that the, the shares were pre-CGT in the hands of the deceased person. So the shareholder picks up post-capital gains tax shares with new market value, but for the company the company's assets remain pre. In other words, this rule about majority change of underlying interests doesn't get triggered if the change occurs as a result of the death of a particular individual. So we go back to our, our company A case, which is, is quite simple, that essentially we then sell the asset in the company. The company makes a pre-capital gains tax capital gain. It then pays out whatever it's going to pay out as retained earnings as a dividend, but the balance, we would wind the company up and pay the capital proceeds to the shareholder that inherited the shares, and that will be a taxable capital gain at that point in time. That is, it's a taxable capital gain on the winding up of the disposal of the shares. It's discountable. And so the, the taxing point is ultimately at winding up on the difference between the um, date of death value of the shares and the amount received out of the liquidation. So with respect to the company assets, and it's not confusing the way you said it, it's confusing the way the law is set out. For the company assets, the new shareholder slips into the shoes of the original shareholder. But for the shares itself, 
there is no slipping into anybody's shoes. It's just a change of CGT status and a new cost base. It's basically a new start. But for the company assets, the new shareholder slips into the shoes of the old shareholder. So now if we say the um, original shareholder is not an individual but is a discretionary trust, then I understand, or, not, or even just a trust, then I understand you can still slip into the shoes of the original shareholder as long as the beneficiaries haven't changed since 1985. So for, for a unit trust, that is quite easy to establish as long as the units haven't changed, the beneficiaries haven't changed. And for a discretionary trust, you would just have to check all the distribution statements since 1985, which would be quite an exercise, and just making sure that the beneficiaries haven't changed. I'm not sure that's 100% right in the way that you've articulated that. So bearing in mind, the, the rule that we're trying to uh, preserve is the majority underlying interests rule. So again, when you've got a fixed trust or a unit trust, it's relatively easy because you're identifying who are the beneficiaries that are known. So the rights and entitlements are known. But for a discretionary trust, the tax office will accept that as long as the class of beneficiaries remains unchanged, then the persons who are entitled, the majority underlying interests, don't change. So it's not like, for example, the capital gains tax concessions where you have to trace through um, the ownership and, and, and where entitlements to income or entitlements to capital have happened within a particular period. Um, the Commissioner will accept that, that, that the exercise of a discretion within the class of beneficiaries under the terms of the trust will mean that that trust has continued to have those beneficial interests all the way through. Okay, so as long as it's Jim Jones' family, and some people might have died or divorced, but as long as it's Jim Jones' family, then it counts as the same beneficiary. It does. But where, where it's more interesting, and, and I'm sorry to distract the discussion, it becomes interesting. So some of the things that have been done in the last couple of years, um, for example, there may have been an exclusion of foreign persons from a trust. So that was happening largely around land tax issues and stamp duty issues. Um, does that change the, the nature of the beneficiaries under the trust for this purpose? Another one is that... That's not clear. It's, it's not clear. Um, I have a view that it doesn't, but, you know, at least for the operation of this clause, but it's not clear. Um, this, the second one that's quite common is um, in a divorce situation, um, one spouse or the other might disclaim an interest under the trust. Um, does that disclaimer operate to mean that you have a, a different trust or different set of majority underlying interests for the purposes of this clause? So these are things that are, are largely untested, and I think... If I was advising listeners, I'd say, if you're in that realm, then we're probably talking private ruling territory. The second question is, we have this rule that the original shareholder must be an individual or a trust with no change of beneficiaries. But what about the new shareholder? Are there any conditions? Or is it okay if the new shareholder is a company or a trust with changing beneficiaries? Can the assets then still stay pre-CGT? This is an interesting problem as well. So what happens if, if you've got the majority, when you're identifying the particular individuals that have the interests and those interests carry over into a new entity? So let's, for example, say um, Heidi and Jeff are the fixed unit holders in a unit trust that holds shares in a company that held those shares 
at 19 September 1985. And then we restructure that so that we have a Jeff company that is where Jeff's the sole shareholder that buys 50% of the shares from the trust and a Heidi company where Heidi holds all of the shares buying the other 50%. So in theory, Jeff and Heidi between them still have even 100% of the underlying interests at that point in time. So we're not even talking about fractions. But we've reframed the basis upon which those shares are held. And I think the answer when you apply the law here is, as far as the company is concerned, that the company asset remains pre-CGT because there has been no underlying change of majority interests. But obviously there will be a trigger for the shareholding because the shareholding is in a new entity. So you're saying if we change the proportion of shareholdings, then it doesn't count as a change in majority of shareholding? Yeah, so for example, and this is a, a slightly different point to the one I was making, we've got company A and company A, the shares are held, let's say 75% by Heidi and 25% by Jeff. And we change it around where Jeff buys 50% of the shares from Heidi. So we have Jeff 75%. Heidi, 25%. As far as the company is concerned, Jeff and Heidi between them have always had 100% of the shares. And therefore, there's been no change of the majority underlying interests when you look through who held those interests between them as at 19 September 1985. If there had just been a sale among the existing shareholders, then we wouldn't have had a trigger that triggered the change in CGT status? Yep. And now, can I just very quickly come back to what happens to the capital gain? There's always this conception when pre-CGT assets are held in a company, original shareholder died, the new shareholder came in. There is this feeling, yes, it's all pre-CGT, it will all be tax-free. But I think that notion is actually very, very wrong because, yes, for the time being, the profits have been parked in the capital profits reserve. But when we liquidate the company and all those capital profits come out, there will be CGT. Yes, there might be the 50% CGT discount, but there might not even be when the when it's a company. You know, when, when there's a company, there is no 50% CGT discount. So the full capital profits reserve comes out and is subject to CGT. Actually, no. If the new shareholder is an individual then they will have the 50% CGT discount because the capital proceeds come out of the company, but then they run against the cost base of the shares and then the individual shareholder can apply the 50% CGT discount. Yeah, if you've got an individual shareholder, it changes. So that's right. Your analysis is correct. If you've got company shareholders, then there's no, there's no discount? discount, obviously. But if you've got a trust or an individual holding the shares, then they will be eligible for the discount subject to, of course, to the starting point and also subject to what the composition of the assets are of the company at the time of the disposal. Yes. So basically to summarise, when you hold pre-CGT assets in your own individual name or or as a trust, then those assets are really 100% truly CGT free. But when you hold pre-CGT assets in a company, then there will be CGT on it. You might, you you probably will get a 50% CGT discount if you hold the shares in individual names, but there will be capital gains tax on those pre-CGT sh share on those pre-CGT assets. Yeah, the 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 flip is, 
when you've inherited shares in a company where the company assets are pre-CGT, then you're going to be subject to CGT on the shares themselves. So when the pre-CGT reserve is paid out of the company, that is a separate taxing point in relation to the shares themselves. And, and you know, the gain is the capital proceeds coming out of company pre-CGT reserves as against cost base being market value at date of death of the deceased person in respect of the shares that were the subject of the inheritance. Yeah, and it's actually a very good point that because the cost base was set at the time of death, it means that when you liquidate the company, you basically only pay capital gains tax on the capital gain from death until now. Yeah, for planning, anybody that's involved in planning in this space, it can be quite fun because you're, you're essentially working out what you can do. And one of the things we haven't covered on is more unusual arrangements. So that is Again, we talked before about, let's say, Heidi and Jeff own something 50-50. If we do it so that Heidi continues to own you know, one ten-thousandth of the interest and Jeff owns the rest, then between the two of us, we've still got 100%. But if, if Heidi, if I buy the entirety of Heidi's interest out, then we've changed the majority underlying interest at that point in time. So, yeah, the short answer is, for my 10-second summary, It can be fun. It's got lots of traps. Be careful and you know, go slowly. Welcome back. Let's go through the example of Company D once more in more detail. Three things happen. First, the original shareholder dies. Then the building gets sold. And then third, the new shareholder takes the cash, takes the money out of the company. So let's start with the death of the original shareholder. The original shareholder dies. And let's assume again that at the time of death, the building is worth 5 million. The original cost, you might remember, is 100,000. And at the time of death, the building is worth 5 million. And that is the only asset in the company. So because the change in shareholding is due to death, the capital gain in the hands of the old shareholder is actually disregarded unless the shares go to a tax advantage beneficiary, so like a foreign entity or a charity. But let's assume that the beneficiary is an Australian resident. So then nothing happens to the original shareholder and his estate. The new shareholder receives these shares that were pre-CGT, the new shareholder receives those shares now post-CGT and the cost base is the market value at the time of death. So for the new shareholder, these shares now have a cost base of 5 million and the shares are post-CGT. The company itself has no CGT event, no change to cost base or CGT status. The company assets stay pre-CGT because the new shareholder slips into the shoes of the original shareholder, so you don't have a change in majority shareholding as such. So that's the first happening, that the shareholder dies. Now it comes to the sale of the building. The building sells for six million. The new shareholder has no CGT event. Nothing happens to him. The company has a CGT event and it's the standard CGT event A1. The capital gain within the company is 5.9 million because they received six million less the $100,000 cost base. However, no taxable capital gain since the building is pre-CGT. 
So the company books the 5.9 million capital gain against capital profits reserve. And so now we come to the third event or happening, and that is the new shareholder would like to see his money. So the company pays the 6 million to the new shareholder. And let's assume that the shareholder now liquidates the company. So the 100,000 share capital comes out as a capital distribution and reduces the share's cost base from 5 million to 4.9 million. The 4.9 million in the capital profits reserve in, I mean, we have 5.9 million in the capital profits reserve, but 4.9 million of that comes out as a capital distribution. It could also come out as an unfranked dividend if the company wasn't liquidated, but then it would get taxed at the new shareholders' marginal tax rate. So not ideal. Hence, we liquidate the company. And so the 4.9 million comes out as a capital distribution and this 4.9 million goes against the remaining share cost base of 4.9 million, hence no CGT. So now the cost base of the shares is zero, but we still have 1 million left because you know, we've taken 100,000 out, we have taken 4.9 million out, so we still have 1 million of the 6 million sales proceeds left. And this remaining 1 million comes out as an unfranked dividend. So it's no CGT event, it comes out as a dividend taxed at the new shareholders' marginal tax rate. In Company A, where we had a change in majority shareholding, this 1 million came out as a fully franked dividend because the assets had changed to post-CGT and hence Company A paid tax on this 1 million capital gain. But in Company D, the assets didn't change to post-CGT, so no taxable capital gain upon sale of the building. Hence, the 1 million comes out as unfranked. So hopefully this makes sense to you. In the next episode, episode 300, Andrew Henshaw of Velocity Legal in Melbourne will talk about PSI versus PSB. When do you derive personal services income or have a personal services business, PSI or PSB? That is the topic for next week. Until then, thank you for listening and thank you to class for their support. Bye for now and see you in the next episode.